David Garcia Gonzalez is the co-founder and CEO of Go Localize, a firm which specializes in translation and localization. We're similar in that we've lived and traveled all over the world. David was born in Spain, emigrated to the UK, and lived there for many years. And more recently, he's been living in the US. We talked about how to do translation and localization right, what happens when you fail to care about the details, and I share some funny stories about China in this regard. This was a fun episode, and while I wish you could have heard the entire hour, I cut out 40 minutes so it was more on point and concise. If you want to hear the full episode in the future, send me an email to welivetobuild at gmail.com and let me know. If I get enough feedback, I'll start to cut less out of each episode so you can hear more of the full conversation. Thanks again for sticking with me through 79 episodes. Here's to another 79. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to We Live to Build. My name is Sean Weisbrot, and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and advisor based in Asia for over 12 years. Join us every week to fast-track your personal growth so you can meet the ever-increasing demands of the company or companies you are passionately building. Time waits for no one, so let's get started now. Thank you for talking with me, David. I appreciate it. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how you got into this kind of business. So my name is David Garcia Gonzalez. I was born in northern Spain and I lived there till I was 16 years old. Uh, then I decided to go and study in the UK, finished my high school, did the university there, did a master's in legal translation, which I hated it. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. After that, I just kind of got more into translation and localization. And a couple of years later, I did another master's in audiovisual translation, which are the services that Go Localize does for whoever doesn't really know what localization means. It's adapting the content from one language to another, but also from one market to another. So let's say translating the content from English into Spanish, that's localization, but it's also adapting it. So if there's any nuances or anything that is local to the language or to the pop culture or whatever that might be, when you translate it into Spanish, you adapt it. You use the Spanish as examples from TV or from radio, from whatever that might so it's not just a word-to-word translation, but an adaptation of the whole thing. And also a localization could also be within the same language. So it could be a TV show from the UK and that gets localized into the, into the US. So there's certain things that probably wouldn't work out because people don't really know those people or those famous people. So it gets all adapted in, into the US market. That's what localization is. One of the things I'm curious to know is when a client comes to you and talks about like, oh, I need you to do this project for me, how do you plan for success with a client? Most clients localize the content for many different languages and they don't really tend to know all of the languages. So most important question that we need to ask them, who is your target market? And you obviously know a lot about China and that is uh, the perfect example. If someone says, can you localize something for Hong Kong? It's going to be very different than if you were 
were based in Taiwan or if you were based in Beijing. I think asking the right questions will hopefully get the client to, if they don't know it, ask someone who's going to be listening to this, who's going to be the market. Is it going to be colloquial? Is it going to be more formal? And I think asking those kind of questions, you're going to get a lot closer to the, I don't want to say the perfect product, but you're going to be a lot closer to a product that is going to be to the quality and expectation of the end client. So let's assume I'm a company and I want to do localization. Let's say I, I want to do it in-house. How do I take the next step, right? Once I figure out the target audience and whether it's going to be colloquial or, or street language, like how, once I figure those things out, what's the next thing I should be thinking? Let's about? say you want to localize an e-learning course from English US to mainland China. So the first question will be, who's your target market? The target market on this case will be mainland China. They'll speak a Mandarin. And I think the the second and third question that we will be asking as a company will be, who's just going to be your target market? Is it going to be a student, a professional? Are you going to be training them? Does this need to be formal? How do you want to communicate with them? You know, American companies tend to be quite relaxed and casual with their approach. Maybe the Chinese counterpart wants to go for a more formal, just, just the way they do things. So I think asking who's the, who's the, who's the person who's going to be listening to that? What is the purpose of the recording? Obviously, with an e-learning course, there's two steps. So first, we will have to translate and localize the written content. Once that content has been translated and localized, what we tend to do as a company is we'll send it to the client for them to approve. Normally what they'll do is they'll send it to whoever they've got in their office in China and they'll kind of approve it. That sometimes they might change a few words here and there for their internal terminology that they use. And then once that's done, we will work with the client to pick a voice of a talent that they will like to represent their company as their voice. Uh, and after that, basically we invite the, the clients to be present on any recording sessions that we do, we always tend to get the client at least for the first 10 to 15 minutes into the session to make sure that the pace is the right pace. The voice sounds just like they want it to sound. It's not too fast. It's not too slow. Just to kind of nail it. And then after that, we can just get the voice of a talent to just kind of crack on with the recording session. I was laughing while you said that, although my, my microphone was muted so nobody could see it or hear it, because I think localization is actually a lot more than just, I want to do this for, for this certain group in this certain country, because you said something that was extremely relevant to literally today, where the Chinese government has embarked on a crusade to destroy for-profit education. And the reason they're doing it is because they've also recently admitted defeat in the one-child policy, where they realize that they don't have enough young people to take care of the elderly in terms of paying into the social security system. So in order to incentivize new families to have more than one child in this generation, they have to do everything in their power to get the cost of raising a child down. Otherwise, it becomes untenable for the average family to, to have more than one kid. One of the things that families do with one kid is they put all of their money into raising that kid. So they put a ton of money into their education in order to give these kids an edge over the other kids because they are all seriously competing with each other for work. They all need an edge. What do people do? They take them to these piano lessons and these English lessons and all of the different lessons that they could possibly push the kid into to give them an edge. And the Chinese government is now destroying for-profit education, making it all nonprofit. So the idea of localizing an e-learning course into China right now is actually probably the worst thing you could think of doing as a company. It just really depends. I mean, we, we're based in London, so we tend to work with a lot of companies that they have these e-learning courses 
that they're going to use in all of their offices. So sometimes it's just a compliance thing or they just have to have it for HR purposes or whatever that might be. So sometimes they might not be too fussy on how they are as long as they are there because they needed them for legal reasons, really. Uh, if you're looking at something um, or, lo- or localizing the content of something, let's say a film or something that is, is more personal and it's going to have a different style, then that's something a bit more instructional. There's going to be a lot of subjectivity, how you localize it and how you translate it and especially how you adapt it. Uh, there's a lot of American films from, from the 90s, for instance. That's when I was a, a teenager and a child that I remember when I saw them in Spain the terms were like, oh, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's they lost the joke because when now I go back and listen to the film in English, I just realized that we would have never understood that kind of pop culture and all of those terms and all of those things that they were drinking or eating or we didn't have those things. So there was either an adaptation that was within the localization. There was, there was not equivalent as such. Yeah, I'm used to watching Japanese animation and I almost across the board refuse to listen to the English dubs. I'd rather hear the Japanese because I like it. It's a beautiful sounding language. But inevitably, the subtitles have problems. I used to actually work on a a fan subbing group many years ago for anime, like 15, no, like 20 years ago. We would have someone who knew the language translated into English, and then I would go through and edit it for clarity. Like I would watch the episode and I would have the subtitles and I would go, no, and I would fix everything. And then I would send it on to someone else who would like time it and then it would be encoded and all of that. So I'm aware of how if you don't understand the point that's trying to be made, it's very easy to screw yeah, it up. Absolutely. I mean, obviously you need to understand what the, what the English or what the original says. Sometimes it's it's very, very difficult for someone to be bilingual in both languages. Because even if I'm very good at English, I was born and brought up in Spain. So all of my cultural references are going to be mainly based on what I've learned when I was a child as I was growing up. Let's say a film like Clueless. I'm sure everyone's seen that film from the 90s when they talk about all of those references about high school and and mentos and all of those things that are very very specific to a language there is no way to be able to properly transfer them into a different language or market just because maybe those products or those cultural things don't really translate because we don't have those products because we don't use something similar it's more about the subjectivity of the person the translator or the subtitler to trying to come out with an alternative that actually fits within the same time and space and it's got the same kind of punch which you know if you don't really understand the English, then it doesn't really matter. You just judge it on whatever you've got in front of you and hope for the best really and hope that it actually works. Many times it doesn't work. So many times you lose the jokes and you lose the humor, but something's going to have to give in that process of localization to make sure that within that specific time, you can actually pull out a reference or something that it kind of makes sense, if not to that specific section, but to the whole film really or movie. So having lived in China, I noticed a lot of Western brands trying to get into China and most of them failed miserably, having probably spent tens of millions of dollars in their effort to do so. There's several companies that have succeeded in China. One of them is Burger King. One of them is McDonald's. One of them is KFC. One of them is Starbucks. Those are by far the most successful brands from the West. Part of localization is also giving yourself a local name because you can't call yourself Burger King. You have to use the words that they can say. In Chinese, it's Hangbao Wang, which literally translates to Hamburger King. 
but the other ones don't do as good of a job. It's funny that you mentioned about very mainstream brands like Starbucks or Burger King or McDonald's, because to me, those are almost kind of international brands. You see the little M, whether you're in China or in South America or whatever you are, and you already instantly recognize who they are because they're totally international. I mean, I remember an example with American Airlines from the 80s, and they were translating and localizing uh, one of their campaigns from the US to Mexico when they were starting to fly to Mexico more often. They were coming up with a new business sets. They were very luxurious and they were all made with leather. And the way they translated into Spanish is vuela en cueros, which in English was flying leather, but volar en cueros, cueros means naked. So they basically translated and flying naked. So it was obviously a bit of an issue once they were starting using it in Mexico because everybody thought, well, I don't really want to fly naked on this plane because it's not quite what I was hoping for. Obviously, they were looking for something luxurious and something really good to entice people to fly more often and be more comfortable. But obviously, there was a, a bit of an issue with uh, checking the translation, the localization, and when they realized there were, there were a lot of laughs onto that one. Thank you for sharing that. I was hoping that you would share these kinds of things. Do you have any others? Uh, well, there was another one from China for the brand Coca-Cola. I think it was in the 60s or 70s. They translated the brand name to Chinese and they translated a Coca-Cola as in it will revive the dead people from the tombs or something like that. It was kind of crazy. And at that time, what happened is that people didn't want to drink Coca-Cola because of that slogan and the way that it was translated. And then Pepsi became more popular in China at that time. They call themselves in Chinese, Coca-Cola. They've done a translation that is literally the sound of Coca-Cola in the characters that represent those same sounds in Chinese. So sometimes you'll actually do that or you'll do like uh, Burger King where it's a little translation of like King is Wong and hamburger is Hong The Bong. Burger King makes a little bit more sense because they, they get a concept of what they're trying to sell, the king of the burgers. Exactly. So in that regard, it makes sense. But hamburgers are also something that they that the Chinese don't really get. They get McDonald's, but I don't know if they default to a beef burger when they go there. I know KFC kills it. They do Yum Brands does amazingly well in China because Chinese love to eat chicken. They love chicken wings. They don't really eat breasts so much. They mostly just really love chicken wings and chicken. Oh, wow. Food. KFC doesn't really do the feet thing, but you can get feet at like any sort of traditional Chinese restaurant. I remember when Obama was president, he did a deal with, with the Chinese government where I think he just kind of gave the Chinese government $2 billion worth of chicken feet because it's something that in America we throw away. It's a byproduct, right? There, you can't use it. Like Americans aren't going to eat chicken feet. It's just, it's disgusting for us. We want the core, the meat. Now, I'm not a meat eater, but Americans in general, like they'll eat the chicken breast, the, the wing, the thigh, they'll eat the core parts that actually have this meat inside. But the Chinese, they just love to sit there and chew on chicken feet all the power to him and and so obama did a, a trade deal with the government where he's like yeah here's two billion dollars worth of chicken feet we were gonna just throw it not like we're gonna throw it away but like yeah this is a gift to you guys here's two billion dollars of chicken feet. <laughs> and they're like oh wow thanks but like two billion dollars of chicken feet doesn't do the whole country justice in a year like you need maybe 10 billion dollars maybe more of chicken feet to satisfy the demand. I know because in a former life, I was actually involved in international trade and I was purchasing chicken feet for China from Brazil. And sometimes I would get orders of like millions of kilos a month. I'm talking 50, 100 containers a month from Brazil to China. And they were doing like five or 6,000 containers a month, I think, the whole country. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think when it comes to obviously localization, if we focus on this example that you just mentioned about the Chinese and like in chicken wigs and chicken fit, it's when you adapt whatever product, then you need to think about what's going to work in the end market, in this case in China. So if they don't need chicken breast, then whoever's going to do a campaign will have to think, okay, what do they eat? How can we target? How can we localize the McDonald's brand so that it works in China? I don't know if they do this in the US, but I know people in Spain drink lots of beer. So in McDonald's, you can actually get beers, not the fountain beers like you do here with the refills, but you can get that. And if you go to Buenos Aires, you can get the desserts that instead of having chocolate, they've got dulce de leche because it's something local that people like it. So they have adapted their own individual brands and products to obviously get more customers and to feel that they're more recognized and that they actually, you know, want to do something nice for them really. And for them, people to appreciate the brand really. So they, they did twist that with the foods and with the products. Right. There was something in China that I really liked, which was they would do these egg tarts at McDonald's. It's like 80 cents or 70 cents for an egg tart. And it's got a little bit of sugar in the egg. It's just really nicely done. And they've got like these pineapple pies or you get a taro flavor, which is like kind of a like a sweet potato, like this purple sweet potato. All of these brands do their own sorts of localization with the food menus. Like if you go to KFC in China, it's a sit down experience. It's a middle class experience. In America, it's kind of like a lower class experience. Like so what's what's amazing is these brands want to be seen as for sophisticated people in Asia. And so I remember hearing about people wanting to go to these restaurants like on dates. You're like, oh, where are you going for your first date? Oh, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to McDonald's. <laughs> it's expensive. If you do that in the US, that would be your first and last date with that person, I think. <laughs> <laughs> These brands have localized in a way that they are actually fundamentally a different experience as a company. In relation to that, if you think about it, you know, in the US, people treat food like something very casual, like there's a lot of fast food. So you can even get a drive through and just get your burger or get your Starbucks or whatever that might be. But I think, for instance, in Spain, people don't actually eat while they're driving. I think food in Southern Europe countries, especially, it's, it's, it's more of a sacred thing. So you take your break, you get your food, you sit down, you have one or two courses, you have the dessert. It's more like a ritual almost. And I think maybe the way they've in China is kind of similar to that where people do take that break and they sit down and they eat their meal rather than eat as you go like what we do in the UK where you just eat on the tube rushing into a meeting while maybe you know in China they, they've gone for an approach that works to get more customers to the door if they had maybe like a drive-through or maybe they tested it who knows they've realized that people didn't want to do that because they didn't want to eat in the car so they actually, they did have their first test of a drive-through in China probably a decade ago. What they found was people were getting the food through the drive-through in their car, parking in the parking lot, and then going inside to eat it. Or they would walk through the drive-through. As a culture, they had no concept of what a drive-through was. That kind of defeats the purpose if you think about it. Because to me... In the US, you get your car, you get your Starbucks, or you get your burger, and then something that as you get to work, or if you're in a hurry, then you just cannot eat it quickly, whatever you are. And to me, if you have a drive through and then you stop to eat it, it kind of like, well, I might as well just eat it inside, if you know what I mean, right? 
the, the cultural thing here that they probably weren't thinking about is that most people in China live in really large cities of 10 million or more where there's a really fantastic public infrastructure. And so the average person doesn't own a car. They can't afford a car. So they either walk everywhere to public transport or they'll take like a taxi. So the point of a drive through is kind of useless because nobody can afford cars. They don't travel by car. They travel with public transport. So yeah, it defeats the purpose of an actual drive through if you don't have a car. So I guess they tested it and then realized that, well, people are not driving, so it doesn't make any sense. We might as well just cut that off and just have the restaurants where people come in and order the food. No, they, they kept it. They kept doing it. The average American driver is about 16 when they start driving. The average Chinese driver is about 32 to 35 when they start driving. Now, they might have experience with scooters as teenagers, but scooters and cars are totally different things. I love to see these kind of nuanced differences in uh, cultures. If you think about this, this examples that we're talking about now, you have to really know a lot about that culture. And probably you need to live in that country to know that those things don't work because if you're a translator who knows a lot about who are u.s native but you move to china you might know all of those things but you might not know how to come up with an equivalent or a localized version it takes a bit of trial and error you were mentioning that they were pushing for the drive-throughs even though the people the people didn't have cars obviously as a translator who lives in the u.s who's never been to china but maybe studied chinese for many many years they wouldn't be able to come up with something like that and it just takes a, a lot of for a company obviously if they want to push it and they want to spend money trying it then they do that and they realize it doesn't work that was a, a perfect example of a bad localization because it wasn't never going to go anywhere but i guess they had to try it in this example it's especially from the movies from the 50s and the 60s like greece when they were going to the car and they were watching those films i think sometimes people kind of like those examples and they want to push those things that people see in films to see if that takes on but if it doesn't it doesn't and i think you just got to move forward an example of that kind of localization if something doesn't work you learn from that lesson and then you, you know that that doesn't work and you adapt it to whatever content that you're pushing through really it's been interesting so far we've talked about a lot of random things it's really easy to do well and it's really easy to screw up depending on who you are how you look at it how humble you're willing to be and who you hire to help you you are also talking about someone who may have studied Chinese but never actually spent time there. On the flip side, I've also encountered people who were natives of that country, who grew up in that country, who also could speak another language like English, who were working with companies on their localization and failed to comprehend the uniqueness of what was being offered and therefore how to make it understandable to the people because it was something so foreign to them that they just had no concept of how to make it make sense. So how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think if you don't really know what something is or how something works or what people do with that concept, that idea, that product, that service, the best thing you can do as an individual, or if you're willing to hire a company to help you with that, is just have someone doing a lot of market research, asking the right question, trying to understand exactly how people use that, how people interact with that what does it do what's all about it really and the more you get to understand that concept even if it's foreign it might not be that you can you know fully come up with a word that represents that but you can maybe have a little explanation of what that does but initially to be able to kind of transfer something correctly with the same kind of meaning and nuances the only thing you can do is just trying to really really understand how it works what it does how are people interacting with that idea that concept so is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention real fast before we close out this episode? 
I've published a book called Child Biting Chorizo and Chancing Your Arm. And it's got a little subphrase called How I Made It Big in Britain. Obviously, that's a bit tongue in cheek. I didn't make it big in Britain, but I made it big for myself, but not in terms of like Donald Trump. But it's a book that I wrote because I wanted to tell my story and my experiences. It's very much related to localization. I moved to the UK, even though I knew a little bit of English. My English was enough to scratch, to do many things. And when you learn the language, you almost cannot learn it as book English with everything is grammatical and correct. And when you get exposed to the country, everything changes. Nobody really speaks like that. So you had to adapt. So I wrote that book almost to help people that were moving from one country to another, that they had to learn a new language. And all of those lessons learned were not really learned, but they were fuck ups. Part of my French, <laughs> you might have to beep that one. But there were all of those things that maybe if I would have known better, I would have done differently. But those are the things that make you who you are and you won't make them again. So how can people follow up with you? So if they want to follow up with me, they can actually go to my website, which is uh, www.godavidgg.com. Or they can follow me also on Instagram, godavidgg. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. So if you like this episode, definitely follow up with David. I'll have the details for his book and his website and his Instagram in the show notes. And don't forget that entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself every day. And don't forget that if you're going to move into new markets, it's super important to understand why you're going to that market, who you're targeting in that market, and who's helping you to actually prepare yourself for that transition. If you make a mistake, it could cost you your business. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. 